The UDR cast is not affiliated and does not represent any 12-step fellowship. I, Bill Ward, the host of the UDR cast, will be sharing my experience and my journey of recovery. That does include, but is not limited to, the literature contained in the Big Book of Alcoholics Anonymous and the 12 Steps. Our guests will be sharing their own path to recovery and what has worked for them. The UDR cast encourages and supports all paths to recovery. Welcome everybody to the UDR cast. UDR stands for Uncover, Discover and Recover. My name is Bill Ward and I'm coming to you from the recovery capital of Canada, Calgary, Alberta. Here we are going to discuss everything recovery, different perspectives, different experiences, both with the people I know and with others from around the world. If you resonate with anything you've heard on this episode today, we ask that you share it with anyone who you think may benefit from it. If you have any questions or comments, please find us at billward.life and send us a message in the info section. We'll get back to you as soon as we can. If you are interested in more recovery content, you can find the buttons for the YouTube channel and other social media outlets on the homepage, and you will be redirected to those platforms. We can recover. One person, one family, one community at a time. Today, my guest is a friend of mine, uh, Melanie J, who I met uh, a few years ago on an outskirts of town meeting. Uh, We live in Calgary, Alberta, and uh, she lives just on the outskirts of town, and we met at a small meeting. You know, based on the Fellowship of the Spirit, our friendship has grown, and I think because of our own connections with our own higher powers, it's really flourished. So I'm really happy to have Melanie J here to share some of her story and her experience, strength and hope and the things that have really helped launch her recovery. So Melanie, really glad to have you. Thanks for coming. Thanks so much, Belle. I'm, I'm really honored and really grateful to be here and have this opportunity to share my experience, strength and hope and and talk about, you know, our spiritual malady and, and what opportunities there are for us to heal and to grow in this world. Awesome. And I really like that you'd brought up the spiritual malady, uh, you know, I think far too often. And my Jess, my friend Jesse and I were speaking about this in a large degree today, how the rooms really focus on the substance. And that's not really the problem at all, although it, it is at the beginning. But for long-term quality recovery and sobriety, the focus needs to be on the spiritual malady. So, you know, as we go through your story, we'll be able to expose that spiritual malady um, watch how it manifests in whatever behaviors and, and substances. And hopefully the listeners are able to kind of clue into that. So, so yeah, let's get started. So, you know, maybe just kind of start at the start, you know, how you grew up and, uh, you know, just what was your experience as a youngster and what your family was li- life was like and kind of walk us through that period of life. Sure. Thanks, Bill. So, you know, I, um, I think on on the outside, my my family looks like most families, you know, two parents uh, and a brother. We moved around a lot when I was when I was early in my life, and you know, my perception is that that was about um, my parents seeking a geographical cure for what ailed them. And yeah, you know, I don't I don't really remember a lot 
until I was, you know, the, the first time I drank probably symbolizes a lot about um, my family and where, where we were at and where I was at. And, and so I was about 10 and, and I was at a family party and uh, everybody was doing tequila shots and they invited me to, to do a shot with them. And, and so two things happened. One, I was included and I was seen. And I remember just, you know, standing up a little straighter, being included, and then doing that shot and realizing that there was something out there that made me feel like not me. And I didn't really know that I didn't like to feel like me until I didn't. And that was so powerful. I don't think I'll ever forget that feeling of that safety, that warmth. Now, in mind, it was tequila. So, so the warmth probably had a lot to do with that as well. But, you know, that, that, that change in perspective that was so foreign and yet so welcome. And it was, yeah, like I said, a moment I'll never forget. And, you know, that really I didn't. I drank maybe at at uh, family parties. There was there was always lots of my parents are very very social. They like lots of people around, so there was always lots of that. And I would drink occasionally, and and I never really sought it out until I was in junior high. You know, I I started going to bush parties and and that kind of thing. And I had been really musical, and I had gotten this job at the local music store. Started hanging out with musicians and. And they were kind of the, it was a small town in, in BC and, and they were kind of like the leftover hippies that were, were still kind of hanging around and, and playing music and, and getting high and getting drunk. And, and so I had this in, you know, with this group and, and I kind of started splitting that fragmentation started happening where I had like this one mask that I wore at school. And I had another mask that I wore at home and I had another mask that I wore um, at work with the musicians and when I got to hang out with them. And, and again, there was that feeling of being included, you know, in something. You know, I had lots of friends at school. I, I did well at school. I'm a good reader. So that made it easy for me. But I had lots of alcoholic qualities when I look back. You know, if I wasn't doing well at school, then I used manipulation to do well at school. You know, be the nicest person in the class, be the teacher's favorite, get the boy beside me to show me his test. You know, I used whatever means I had and, and really didn't think too much about it. That's just who I was, who, who part of me is. And yeah, and, and even back then, you know, I, I drank alcoholically if I, I had the in, so I would get the alcohol for my friends and I when we would go to these parties and, and I would always come up with two, two bottles, you know, one for them to share and one for me and, and not tell them, you know, already secretive, you know, not tell them that I got two, the ones for me and I'm keeping it for me and I won't be sharing that one, you know, I'll be sharing this one and I'll have a drink of that one. So that it doesn't seem like I'm getting drunk without ever having a drink. But, you know, I always had that, had the backup, the safety net. Would you drink out of that second bottle secretly? Absolutely. Because you didn't want to share it with them. Yeah, I didn't want to share it with them. And, and I wanted that escape. And how old were you? 
I was probably, that would have started maybe 12, 13, wow. junior high-ish. <laughs> Already showing those dishonest qualities of most alcoholics. That's amazing. I wanted to ask you, uh, at 10, when you first got asked to drink with the family, and it was tequila, no doubt. Like, how did that even come about? You're 10 years old. Like, I'm having trouble fathoming, like, oh, little Melanie, we're going to do some shots of tequila. How did that even happen? Well, you know, alcohol was just a really big part of of my family's life. And, and I would assume that by the time of day that this occurred, there had already been lots of drinking. And, and I was very accustomed to just being around kind of like under the surface. I was the youngest, so everybody else was involved and yeah. And it wasn't, you know, it just was a good family idea. Let's, you know, you can have your first drink. Here you go. Let's make it tequila. You can eat the worm. (laughs) That's, that's happened to be what they were pouring. So, um, you know, it just was, a a normal family celebration <laughs> ten four, ten four. so as you're kind of walking through those early years uh you're developing some of these these tools or these weapons of manipulation of uh a lot of it i can sense is in validation right like when you got accepted as you were under the surface you could have a drink with the family and now you were seen yeah. and then as you were now kind of into your junior high years getting into high school years, you're using some of these other manipulation, minded emotional blackmail tactics essentially to, uh, to get validation, to be seen, to be noticed, to be validated in, in who you are, right? And, and it started at a young age, so that's, that's pretty common. Another thing that I noticed that you'd started off the interview was you moved around a lot. I don't know if that's an alcoholic addict thing but a lot of people that are in this recovery program start off their story with we moved around a lot so I'm sure there's got to be some tie to that over the next couple years I'm going to try to focus in more on that and see see what connection there is but anyways you're kind of going through these years uh yeah carry on tell us tell us some more yeah so so I was already as you said I was already developing some of the um the tools of of um, of a strong manipulator and of the mindset of an alcoholic to be whatever I need to do to get whatever I want is the goal and and to make decisions and the the very first alcohol seriously alcoholic decision I made that I was not drunk for was in my final year of high school and like I said, I was good at school. I, I had already been accepted into, into medical school in Calgary um, based on a pre-med at UBC. And it involved me staying in the town I lived in for the following year. And one day I decided, you know what? I don't think I want to live here anymore. And so I went to the guidance counselor and I said, find anything that's still open. I'm going to apply anything that's not here. And within a couple of weeks, I moved to Calgary. So completely abandoned a plan that I had worked on and put a lot of effort into to make a complete life change and packed up right after high school and came to Calgary instead. Yeah, that's uh, a good sign of early alcoholism too, right? Uh, 
how did your family, did your family try to get you to stop and stay and keep to your original plan? Or were you kind of, they were letting you do your thing by then? Yeah, they really let me do my thing. I, I tend to be a bit strong-willed. Uh, however, that really wasn't the kind of relationship we had anyway. My brother was already here. He, my brother is older than I am, uh, four years older than I am, and, and he lived here already. And I'd already come and spent a couple of summers um, living with him here. In my small family group, he definitely is the mature one. Mm. So it didn't seem unusual that I would just do what I was doing. And a little foreshadowing, he is an alcoholic as well, right? He is. I'm going to talk, yeah, I'm going to share a little bit about him. Yeah, in a few minutes, yeah. Okay, so now you're in university in Calgary, just kind of on a whim, and you don't know anybody. Nope. Um, I'm sure that the drinking takes on a new a new life now, um, being with a whole bunch of young people and, and many of them party animals, and you're in university, and you're exploring new life. Like, So how did that go for you? That was like a whole new world. Suddenly, so many people that didn't know me, didn't know my family, the sense of anonymity that I now could live in um, created a whole new level of um, acting out in secrecy and using people to my own advantage and really have that validated within my peer group, you know, because I'm, I'm now I'm, I'm in nursing school now. And I'm living with other nursing students. And, and we're all kind of in that same age group, that 17, 18, uh, 19, where we're drinking and, and, you know, we're kind of playing with men's emotions and experiencing the power of that as young women. And, and I just took it to a whole nother level. You know, I didn't have a meal plan at university. I had a very... I think a very financially astute plan to date um, for meals. And, and that's how I ate in university. I dated. Sometimes it worked out well and sometimes I went a little hungry. Uh, <laughs> you know, but I didn't, I didn't really see anything wrong with that. You know, I, I really didn't have that insight. I just was a real selfish, self-centered, this is what I need you know, and, and was a liar. Was there a lot of drinking happening at this point? Lots of drinking, lots of drinking and really the celebration that I can do it out in the open, you know? So I have the bottle in my room for, for before, and then I can join the other girls for the pre-bar um, with the getting ready. And now I'm included, right, in this atmosphere. And, and as I told you, you know, part way through, like maybe like year two and a half or year three of university, I lived in residence with the girls on the other wing of my residence were girls that had come from a Bible college. And, and I just remember wanting them so much to like me, wanting them to include me like they were good people. And I really wanted to be included with them. And I started going to church occasionally with them. Loved it and hated it at the same time. You know, I loved that I could see people that had like purpose and, and confidence and peace and certainty in their life. 
And, and I hated it because I never felt more different inside than when I was in those groups. So there was a kind of a deep sense of envy there? I would say a deep sense of envy and a really deep, firm belief that I fundamentally was less than. So in the 12 and 12, Bill Wright's line, it says, the feeling of anxious apartness. Is that kind of the feeling? Absolutely. Absolutely. You know, and again, it comes back to, you know, putting that, that mask on and being what those people wanted me to be because I never felt like who I was underneath that would have value. And, and one of those core beliefs and the, the big book talks about like, you're going to have to give up some lifelong beliefs. And that was one of mine I had to give up because it kept me always thinking about self. Either I need to prove that I'm better than, or I am absolutely worthless. Mm. Through this period, was your behavior as you were drunk quite often, quite a bit of the time? Um, I know for me in my experience, my behavior was definitely antisocial, where not socially accepted is what that is actually meaning. Um, you know, I would be in fights and I would hit on my friends, girlfriends, and I would act out in ways I would steal. I would get arrested by the cops. And so my behavior was very antisocial and I pissed a lot of people off and I pushed people away that even were kind of like me, but I was a little worse than them sometimes. But were you exhibiting like alcoholic antisocial behaviors through these periods of time? Yeah, certainly in... You know, I can, I can see it now how I just tried to pull power from anywhere I could. And, and whether that was taking another girl's uh, boyfriend uh, for the night just to prove that I could, not really caring about the consequences. And then, of course, there being consequences. Feeling that guilt and shame the next day when people are telling me, because I've always been a blackout drunk. That wasn't something I moved to. That was just the way it was for me. And so hearing the stories and seeing some of the scorn on on my my peers' faces, definitely, you know, like if anybody was going to take their clothes off and streak, it was going to be me. If there was anyone that was going to lay down in the middle of the street just to make cars go around and see what would happen, that was me. Just really not caring about myself and not caring about the people around me. Wow. Knowing you today and hearing some of that, like it just doesn't add up, right? But of course we know you've had a psychic change because you've done the work, but uh, but that's pretty interesting, some of that, some of that stuff. As your friend, I didn't know some of that. Anyway, so you were powerless already at this point. So do you believe you had crossed the line from moderate heavy drinker to alcoholic in that time while you were in university or or do you think given sufficient enough reason had you known some facts about the illness you might have been able to stop or moderate then do you have any take on that um you know what i don't know that i was ever a moderate drinker i i feel like it's likely that i had already cross the line that's the way I'm made and there was there's times in my story where I went periods without drinking but I substituted 
other behaviors for the substance during that time. Mm -hmm. But my thinking and the pathways in my brain were fully established as alcoholic, certainly at that, by that point. And, and I left nursing school based on my second really big alcoholic decision. So I was, I was in my, my last year of nursing school and I had a particularly challenging day in, in clinical practice. And I went back to the dorm and, and I was like, you know what? I don't like nurses. I think they're bitches. I don't think I'll, I don't think I'll be a nurse. And the very next day I withdrew from nursing school and I moved out of nurses residence that weekend. And I moved in with my brother. My brother was always that safety net. And, uh, and I moved in with my brother and, and then I entered, I really entered into a period of, of not drinking as much. So when I drank, I drank alcoholically, but I was more of a binger rather than a daily kind of drinker in that period. And, and it was through that period then that I, I started shifting my, my substance to my, to how to succeed in the world, how to fill that void inside of me, that same, I am less than that core loneliness that feels like a ton of bricks on your soul. You know, I started looking for other ways to re find relief from that. And so I, I started working and I started looking for the things that I thought I would find, I would find happiness in. I found a good guy and I got married and, and I started to build a career and I went back to school and I got some education and then we started to build together and we got a house in the suburbs and, and we got a dog and we got a cat and we got a boat and we got a trailer. And, and, you know, I start putting all of these things together and it's starting to look like a pretty nice life. And inside, I still feel the same. I still feel the weight of loneliness. I still feel irritable and discontented a lot of the time. And I don't know why. And I start going to psychiatrists and I start going to self-help seminars and buying self-help books and, and funding all of that industry and always thinking the next thing is going to be the one. And if I could just stick to it, if I could just stick to that doctrine, I, I would feel better. So you weren't drinking a lot through this process. Nope. But you had alluded to earlier that you had substituted a number of other behaviors in substitute of the substance. Mm -hmm. So these other things, the, the pursuit of career, it's almost the substance, the pursuit of uh, material blessings and, and the house and, and striving for all of these things that, you know, like the book talks about the delusion that we can rest happiness and satisfaction if we only manage well. And so that's exactly what you're doing. And it is a delusion. You are a victim of it that you can rest, mean, grab, take, pry out of life, happiness and satisfaction if you only manage it well. But just like myself in my own story, very similar to yours, business, built a big business, had nice house, family, a lot of really cool things. But when I was by myself again, I was still me. So there was that big hole that was still couldn't get filled and I didn't know what was wrong right and and by the sounds of it you didn't either so you know as you're walking through your marriage 
acquiring all of these things that everybody wants, that is part of life. Where do you go from there? So my husband and I have been married for about seven years when we finally had our first child. And I was so happy. You know, all I ever wanted was to be a mom and to have this beautiful boy and he's healthy. And I remember being more full of fear and feeling more broken becoming a mom than I had ever felt before. I, I just felt like I've got, I've got no skills for this. I, I don't know how to handle it. I don't have, I don't have it. I can't do this. And I, that's when my drinking started again, it was after the birth of, of my son. Wow. So basically it's ramping up because of your restless irritable discontent. It is really wrapping up. You're in fear. You're just stuck in self. You're stuck in the spiritual malady and you need some type of relief. I want to go back, rewind a little bit. And as you were in the beginning years of being with your husband and some of your behaviors, your blackout drinking, um, doing silly things, antisocial behaviors, through that process, there's a lot of guilt and shame through blackout drinking, as I know, because I was the same. When you got together with your husband in those first couple, two, three years, did you ever describe to him, you know, any of that type of behavior or was that just left unsaid? Unsaid. Complete secret. Yeah. He was super excited when he found out. <laughs> <laughs> I bet. I mean, he knew that I, I came from a family that, that partook in a lot of drinking. He knew my brother, who was a heavy drinker and was exhibiting some of, of um, the antisocial behavior as far as um, getting in fights, getting arrested, you know, it kind of been that more of violence and aggression kind of antisocial behavior. He was, he was engaging in that and... You know, I, I wasn't, and he, I, I kind of thought like, this is, this is what I need. Here's this, this guy, he loves me and, and he sees me and he is safe. He is safe and he's got everything under control and I can just slide in there. Okay. So you're painting a pretty awesome picture. So now you've had your child, your little boy. And now drinking starts taking an important place in your day-to-day -day life. Can you walk us through some of that? So it started really, um, you know, I would, I would tie a lot of things in with the culture that we live in, you know, and the mummy juice and, and all of the kind of symbols that, that we have kind of in our culture around it being okay to be um, a, a young mom like a mom with a young child, because I wasn't a young mom, but I, a mom with a young child engaging in, in day drinking, you know, and, and doing that kind of thing. And, and then I went back to work. What's mommy juice? Wine. Oh. Yeah. Yeah. Wine. There, there actually is some brands of wine now that are called that. So it's kind of like a cultural thing because I'm not privy to this, so I'm just getting clarity and maybe the listeners, because women listeners probably may identify, maybe some of the guys won't, but you're talking about the ability to drink um, and it's okay by 
standards that our society set to drink as a mommy through the day and the mommy juice is, is wine. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. And, and that there is, there is a social acceptance around that. And as an alcoholic, you know, I can see those things 20 miles away and I can, you know, zone right into that and, and, um, and amplify it and say, that makes that okay. Mm-hmm. You know, my husband is not a drinker. He's, he's just not. Um, and so I was always the one that would be encouraging him to drink more and, and encouraging him to, to act out how I was because I felt a lot better when he did that, you know, <laughs> there's a lot of comfort in, you know, we, we call it in the programming, co-signing the bullshit. Right. And I was strongly in favor of getting him to co-sign my bullshit. So would he partake in your pushiness to drink extra, drink more, party a little bit more? Would he partake in that? No, he was very obstinate about it, actually. Yeah, it must have started revealing the truth about your problem and and maybe start unraveling some things. Well, really what it what it then brought me to was an increased level of of secrecy and lying and and having that that planning around where do you have all the bottles hidden? How are you going to buy? I, I manage the money in our relationship. Usually one person does, it seems like. And so I took that on. I was like, you know what? That's a stress you don't need. I'll, I'll do that for us. You know? <laughs> Selflessly. Selflessly. <laughs> yes. And I did that. And, and so, you know, um, and, and he really trusted me to manage that. And I used that to my advantage in order to make sure I always had enough and my drinking progressed and my desire to overcome my drinking started to come into my mind. And, you know, at the same time in my career, I'm, you know, I'm, I'm building what I believe is, is my empire, right? And my false pride and my false ego is getting bigger and bigger. I actually had a shirt embroidered with QFU and I would wear this shirt under my suits and QFU stands for queen of the fucking universe. Pardon my language. (laughs) And, and I wore that and and I felt that made me feel powerful. You know, it made me feel powerful and I was always looking for something to make me have more power. And so that was, you know, then I'm having this good career, you know, and, and I'm feeling like a real fraud because you know the area of, of expertise is in people management and connection to people and I feel extremely disconnected and I'm starting to speak nationally within my industry on HR practices and showing people how to be valued and and how to motivate them and all of these things and and inside I'm thinking I'm not motivated I can't stop drinking you know I'm not connected to people. I'm, I'm just like a facade and I'm feeling more and more disconnected and I'm feeling more and more guilt and shame. And to ease that, I drink more and the cycle continues. 
So what what ended up happening was that you know, I continued to drink, I continued to, to go down that trajectory of, of alcoholism. And, you know, I come to what turned out to be like about the last six to eight weeks of my drinking. And at this point, I'm, I'm not going to work anymore. I'm just staying home and I'm drinking and I'm blacking out and I'm waking and I'm drinking and blacking out, which to me were incredibly powerful uh, God shots. And so the first one that occurred you know, I was, I was in my room. I, I drank at home. I, I wasn't a public drinker in this part of my drinking. You know, the image outside was very different from the image inside the house. So I'm not going to work. I'm just drinking. Obviously my husband is very unhappy with the situation and, and he's kind of off in another part of the house. And, and I come too. and it's dark out now and I'm lying half in and half out of the bed. And the last thing I remember, it was light and now it's dark. And I look over and I see what probably has, you know, brought me to consciousness. And that's that the door is to my bedroom is open now and the light is shining through. And in the doorway is my son. And he's about nine now. And he's standing there and he's wearing his little boy PJ still because nine sounds old but it's still a little kid and he's wearing these adorable two-piece PJs and I can see the look on his face and the look on his face is confusion and fear and disgust And I hope to God I never forget that look. You know, in that, in that moment, I felt what he felt because I remember standing in that spot in the doorway looking in at a parent half in, half out of the bed, semi-conscious with fear, disgust, and confusion. And I never wanted to make my son feel that way. And that was a really powerful moment. But you know, it wasn't enough for me to quit drinking. It was enough for me to justify that I needed to drink more. Because what kind of person does that to their own kid? And I continued to do that for a couple of more weeks. So hang on, I wanna jump in there. As you and your husband are disconnecting and you're getting more and more sick and he's getting more and more sick in his own right, your husband, your child's getting more and more sick. Like it's a family illness, right? It really affects the whole family. Had your husband ever come to you and said like, look, Melanie, you got to get this under control. The frothy emotional peel. He did try that? He did. He, he tried talking to me on a number of occasions saying, you know, he would kind of call me out on on some of my lies because I was trying to manage the the show of alcohol, you know, and so the box of wine I I had like I had extra ones and so I would replace the bladder 
in the box. So it was like the same box, but then he would, you know, he would pick up on some of this stuff because it's harder and harder when you're drunk all the time to keep all of this stuff aligned <laughs> and to keep the bottles hidden. And it's so much work to be an alcoholic. And, and he started like, you've got a problem, you know, you have a real problem. And he never got to the point where he said he would leave me. I think he thought he could fix me. Did your son ever say anything before that moment in the doorway? I don't remember him ever saying anything. I remember him watching me. He would ask if he could drink what I was drinking. So he started noticing some things at least. Yeah. Yeah, he was very aware. And and I was doing everything I could to have have them spend as much time together and apart from me as I could. You know, I was organizing father-son weekends. I was signing my husband up to to manage the, you know, little league and, and things like that because that meant more time for me alone so that I could drink. Hmm. Just isolating yourself, eh? Yeah, that's, uh, that's pretty uh, heart-wrenching stuff. I like I'm just picturing and almost like in the moment of you dealing with your husband and your kid and and all of these little situations like I can I'm almost like picturing myself being a fly on the wall watching this and watching you just like destroying slowly destroying your life right wow it's pretty powerful shit yeah, for me, it was it was a very powerful moment. And um, I definitely see God in there trying to trying to help me see trying to cut through my bullshit. Wow. So picking it back up where you are seeing the silhouette of your child in the doorway of your room and the guilt and the shame and disgust and what happened after that? So so like I, I said, I that experience didn't move me towards recovery. It moved me further into what I believed to be my only solution, which was alcohol. And I remember hating alcohol and I, I had had a number of GI bleeds and, and, and so it was very painful to drink. But I could manage that too, right? I mean, if you take enough medications before you drink, you know, after you've had the first, you know, six or eight ounces, there, it doesn't feel bad anymore. And just feeling so powerless around being able to stop myself from taking that drink. And in the big book, it it talks about, you know, always this like, you have a few drinks and then you're like, well, I don't know how I got here, but I might as well continue. You know, I was going through all of those experiences. And so a couple of weeks later was the, was the second big God shot for me. Mm. So again, I'm in my room, it's my birthday and, and I've been, I've been drinking and, and whatnot all day. Like I'm, you know, I'm a disgusting mess. So I'm, I'm sitting in my bed and, and I'm, just full of self-loathing and and I know I can't go on anymore. I find myself sitting up in the bed and, and in one hand I've got a gun 
and in my other hand I've got my phone and I knew I had to make a decision the phone didn't really seem like the best decision it just didn't I didn't see how that would help me but God intervened in that moment for me and I dialed that phone and I called my brother and I said to him I think I have a problem and he lives in Vancouver Island and at that point he'd been in the program a couple of years and he said he said okay you've got a problem and I said yeah I've got a problem and he said okay I'll be there and literally within three hours he was at my house in Calgary he hung up the phone he drove to the airport on the island and got the first flight to Calgary and you know that responsibility statement to me now is everything like I experienced the greatest blessing because my brother believed in that responsibility statement anytime anywhere when someone reaches out and he did that and he got there and he took me to my very first meeting and that wasn't enough for me to quit drinking I was so obsessed I was so compulsed I got enough in that first meeting that I started to have some hope you know I still remember that first meeting and 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 being so terrified and and sitting like as far apart from everyone as I could and leaning so hard into the wall in case it might like just encircle me you know and I kept my coat done up right to my chin and I looked down and then all the way around the room every single person said something that I related to that talked about like this crazy stuff that I did not know other people experienced and every single person I was like me too me too I mean my my eyes were opened and I was shocked that there was other people that experienced life the way I experienced it and they talked about what it felt like inside and that they didn't really understand why they felt like that why they felt that bone chilling loneliness but that that was part of a disease and it was part of a spiritual malady and I got hope so in the big book in the doctor's opinion it talks about uh these people explain many things for which we could not otherwise account and in the doctor's opinion the main premise of what that is talking about is they're talking about the substance and the allergy and how the obsession of the mind starts and then we put it in our system and then we find we can't stop. But really what I'm hearing from you is way more of the spiritual malady type stuff. They were explaining many things which you could not otherwise account. The feelings and the emotions and the, the deep inner wounding and the yearning for something different and and how the fear was captivating and controlling you and, and all of these kinds of things. Did that get you more than the talk about the drugs and the alcohol? Um, I think it was, it was both the 
the sharing about the insanity of the obsession, mm -hmm. that part of it, because I really thought I was insane. You know, I really felt that, um, that compulsion was like, you know, I might as well get a lobotomy, you know, like, you know, down on my hands and knees trying to drink the last drop of any substance I could possibly find and being so desperate for that next drink of anything, you know, and I could care less what it was. So that piece in conjunction with these, like, which for me was like a lifetime of feeling a certain way that I had never heard other people talk about. Okay. Wow. Pretty crazy shit. Anyway, so, uh, so your brother shows up, takes you to a meeting after your son and your husband, all this frothy emotional peel doesn't work. You go to your meeting with your brother and then you still drink. I still drink. And, and I continue to drink and, you know, I, I have like a mini reprieve, so I'm not drinking day and night. I'm actually like, I'm starting to go to work a little bit. I'm starting to go to meetings, but I'm, I'm going to a meeting and stopping at the liquor store and, and drinking between the liquor store and home. So I'm trying to like get what I want out of AA without actually stopping drinking. Cause I just can't seem to go more than a few hours. So you're trying to use the program as a, and as a management system. Right. Try to help you decrease it, basically. N not w wanting to, that's just what it turned out to be. Yeah. Yeah. In retrospect, that's, that's what it was. At the time, I wasn't thinking of it that way. You know, I really had the best of intentions. Every day, I had the best of intentions. Mm -hmm. And I really wanted to quit for my husband, for my son, for my brother. So a couple things this brings up. Uh, one, no human power. None of these people and even the love that you have. And, you know, you're going to ruin your marriage. You're going to possibly lose your kid. You're sitting there with a gun in your hand. Your kid's going to lose their mom. And none of this is enough. So that's one point that's, I think, really important for people that are listening. Like, no human power. Um, the other thing I think is uh, you can need it and you can want it. But it's not for people that need it or want it because there are plenty. There's hundreds of thousands, millions that need it and want it. But it's for the people that do it, yeah. that want it and do it. And when I say do it, I mean like follow the the program of action as it's laid out in, in our big book, right? And so, uh, you know, just that to be really important for the people that might be new or don't understand their true predicament because the best of intentions will get you fucking nowhere, really. Yeah. So anyway, carry on with uh, with your drinking and, and where it's taken you. Yeah. So in this in this time frame, this is going on like a couple of weeks since my brother's been out. He's gone back home and, you know, I'm kind of doing this hybrid <laughs> of of lives right and i'm keeping it from my husband he th he thinks i'm doing better you know 
And then one day he finds out and I have to come clean. And I have to eat all of the words that I've said about how I'm doing so much better and how I'm not drinking and how it's been this many hours and this many days. And, and he knows that I've just been lying directly to his face. And, and he said, well, you know what you need to do? You need to call your brother. And I, I didn't want to do that, right? Like my brother has been like my hero and just everything to me. And it seemed worse to let him down. And I phoned him and, and he had always saved me. You know, I phoned him and, and told him and, and I thought I might get a little of that. Um, yeah, it's hard. Uh, you know, a little of that little extra love. And that's not what I got. He said, you need to make a decision. You need to make a decision and then you need to start working a program. And that was it. There was no fluff. There was no, you know, I, I didn't get any of the things that I was always trying to manipulate to get. He didn't give me any of it. Pretty sure he learned that in the program. <laughs> <laughs> and it, after that, then I'm like, you know what? I think my only option is to go to some kind of a, of a lockdown facility to detox, someplace where I, I essentially um, I'm under lock and key in order to get a certain amount of time without alcohol in my system. And, and so that's what I did. I, I went into a, um, a recovery house. Um, I picked one in the middle of nowhere because I really felt like my obsession was so strong and I knew all the things that I had done to get my substance. I figured I would die from exposure if I tried to walk to the liquor store from this place. So that was my, my, my good thinking at that time. And, and I went there and it was a, a, you know, a great program and I got 30 days without substance. And the whole time, all I thought about was alcohol and they would take us out on this bus to take us into town for meetings. And all I could see in this town was the liquor stores. It could have been a beautiful town. I have no idea, but I can tell you where every single liquor store was. And so I got home and, and I was detoxed. But I was a still a full-blown alcoholic in full-blown alcoholism. And I started going to meetings. And, and I spent the whole next year white-knuckling it at meetings. And I showed up late and I left early. I tried as hard as I could not to share and not to talk to people. And on my first birthday, the chair asked me who I'd like to give me my chip. And I realized that I didn't even know anyone's name. You know, in the, in the big book, there's that, the story vision for you. And on the first page, it talks about this, you know, whistling in the dark and the true new sense of loneliness and a jumping off point. And that finally was my jumping off point. I was living with the demons of the four horsemen, you know, terror, bewilderment. I finally got a sponsor and I finally started working a set of steps. So hold on. Um, when you talk about white knuckling it, just for our listeners, and I know so many people do not understand their true predicament. And I know a lot of the messages in the room is get that first year away from the substance and you're on your way. 
I always say you're on your way to where? You're on your way to a relapse because it's not about really the substance. But we need the distance between that, the time between that, in order to get into the to the real meat and potatoes of what the program is. So you get a year sober, but you white knuckled it. What is some of the symptoms of the white knuckling it for you, for some of our women and, and male listeners? What, what kinds of things do you, would you describe that as? So I would describe it as always feeling a sense of impending doom always feeling irritable, quickly moving to anger, frustration, having little or no tolerance for other people, becoming more and more focused on my own perceptions of the world and continuing down the path of manipulating people places and things to to pull a power that I didn't have and living like it felt like 200 years in every day in my head circling things around over and over and over basically living in the spiritual malady full on full on separated from your solution which is alcohol right no escape from it no escape from it you have so much of self stuck on self but somewhere inside you you knew that something needed to change that was probably god consciousness saying something inside you and then then you finally ask somebody to take you through the steps most people will drink in that spiritual malady area and because the pride has reasserted itself and they don't understand the true predicament of this illness, they will usually not ask somebody, try to keep managing it, and then they drink again. You had step one so well, at least the knowledge that you're fucking powerless and what's going to happen, that out of sheer desperation, you finally reached out and, and asked somebody, correct? Absolutely, yeah. So that was, you know, as far as my, um, my spiritual bottom, that was it. For me to really see my spiritual malady and to understand and and accept that there was a power greater than myself that could restore me to sanity, that that moment was my spiritual bottom, my jumping off point. Hmm. So tell us what happened from that point on. So, yeah, so I had this amazing sponsor who set up a plan who said, you know, if you want this, this is what we're going to do. We're going to, we're going to meet. You're going to listen. You're going to do what I ask you to do. And she asked me to commit to that. And she asked me when it says that you're willing to go to any lengths, what does that mean to you? Actually make a commitment. You know, she asked me to do these things and, and I did. I was desperate and I was willing to do whatever she told me. And I was through that desperation, I was beaten into reasonableness. And I said, I will go to any lengths. And she said, what does that mean? And I said, if I can't get sobriety, then I will walk away from my family because this is worse than the drunk wife and mother that they had before. This is doing more harm. 
And I would rather walk away and have them not have me than for me to be inflicting this upon them. And for me, that was the greatest commitment I could make. Later in my sobriety, I do what I do because I've made a commitment to live a certain way. And, and I have a God conscious now and I've had a spiritual awakening. But at that point, I didn't. I, you know, I did the steps. She, my sponsor walked me through them. I did them to the best of my abilities. Each one of them, at the time, I, I thought I did a really deep and thorough job. In retrospect, I skimmed the surface, you know, and it wasn't from her lack of trying to sponsor me. I just, I didn't understand and I didn't seem to have the capacity to go any deeper than the surface. Mm -hmm. My journey in sobriety has been that continual grace of God to allow me to go deeper, to get more. And I did that through, a, really through coming to another place of awareness you know, I was about four years sober, four or five years sober when, you know, I still, I, I just wasn't that kind of free that I saw other people. And, and I started thinking, maybe I've missed something. And the meetings that I was going to didn't seem to have the kind of depth that I was looking for. And I started searching out and, and I really feel like when you start searching out, you know, when you're, when you're looking to learn, the teachers appear. And, and I started connecting with people that had gone deeper and had learned more about the literature and really understood. And I started really doing everything I could to learn more and dig more and, and practice the steps as they're written in our literature as opposed to written on the wall. You know, and I really felt like I did not get this well to be this well. This is not it. I mean, wow. That coming to that point has has brought my spiritual experience to a whole new level. It has has brought my understanding and my commitment to step 6 and 7, which I practice in the 10 and 11 to something I could never even have fathomed, let alone described. And, and it's, it's so beautiful. And that practice of actually making a commitment in step seven, after truly understanding what my problem is in step six, what's blocking me from actually flowing with, with the energy of the world and what I've actually committed to in step seven and, you know, to, to seek and do God's will. And, and actually working every day through the disciplines of the program to keep that flowing through me. And, and not every day is like a rainbow. And that's okay because I have a faith now that says whatever you are going through is part of the bigger plan. And all of these things that you have gone through in your life or that you are going through now are part of what God wants you to learn so that you can be part of his plan, so you can be useful. If I'm 50 years old and I'm finally a useful member of society, I'm finally useful to my peers. And I have the humility to let God do that, however that looks. So we talk about humility 
Step seven, and I love how you talk about six and seven. Humility is the cornerstone principle of all the steps. It's the cornerstone principle of the whole program. Um, step six is essentially learning humility through a lot of fucking pain, humiliation and pain. There's a line in the step 10 that said, the pains of drinking had to come before sobriety and the inner turmoil before serenity. The inner turmoil before serenity, in essence, is step six. You know, doing something different, changing the behaviors and the outlook and and trying to bring God in, even though sometimes it doesn't make sense to do life like that. Like I've been conditioned to do life in the world of force, prying, manipulating, going, taking, grabbing, you know, whatever it may be, you know, maybe it's Tinder, maybe it's dating apps. This is how I'm going to find my wife. I'm going to go get that. And then some manipulation on the texting between the people where I'm not fully honest, right? This isn't really my story. It's a story of my sponsees. But uh, but in the same breath, I can live through my sponsees experience because it's it's a human experience. And maybe getting jobs, lying a bit. Well, they're going to find out that I'm a convict if I tell them and they won't give me the job. Well, no, you be honest and you tell them that you've been in recovery and you're an ex-convict and you put that on the application. Don't withhold that information because that's the prying and manipulating and managing of life that actually causes our failure. You know, telling these little white lies and all of these kinds of things, it doesn't make sense to be honest and moral all the time. So to not do those things is very difficult. And there's a lot of pain because sometimes as you are moral, maybe you don't get that job. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Maybe they're not hiring you because of what's on that application. But after time, you realize that God does have a plan. And how it worked out. Look at where you are now, bro. You're in this position where everything is great and you're using your prison experience and your addiction experience for for usefulness. And you didn't even have to go find it. It just came to you. So the common sense thus becomes uncommon sense. But going through that emotional turmoil to learn these lessons, a lot of people take the easy route and they go back to the old behaviors, the old ways of life. And then if you live the same way you've always lived, you will do what you've always done and you will need relief again and we'll pick up again because now we're living in defective character again. Yeah. If you do what you've always done, you will feel like you've always felt and you will get what you've always got. Right. And what I got by doing that was drunk and alone. But it took you all the pain and inner turmoil and your willingness to fucking change, right? And bring creator in to help you with the change because you couldn't have done it on your own or you wouldn't be here. You would have changed it years ago, but left to your own devices, you can't change it. Like the book says, as marshaled by your own will, we'll fail utterly. Yes. So you have now used creator to help change the character. And through that humiliation and pain, humility, you get to like the desired humility that we're looking for, the step seven humility, a desire to seek and do God's will. And it doesn't mean that you live life as a saint or do it perfectly. No, it just not means at all. you try your best with the best possible attitude to be a good person in this world. And the best way to actually do that is to follow the directions within our literature, right? Right. And following the directions, and and this really shocked me because I've got a big ego. 
following the directions actually works. If you follow the directions, you get the promises. And having that faith, like like now, yeah, I get up in the morning and, and I have a routine because I'm disciplined by my higher power and by the program in a way that I am not capable of without it. And so I have my morning prayers and I have my morning meditation and I set my aim for the day. And my aim for the day is, is, you know, there's this guy that I listen to and I love him and he's like, this is your day. Rigorously authentic. Uncomfortable work. Surrender the outcome. And I repeat that through my day, you know, because sometimes you get a little uncomfortable in your day and there's an easier, softer way that's quick. Yeah, but that's, that's not what I committed to this morning. And I have to do it daily because I have a, a daily opportunity. And tomorrow's opportunity isn't based on today's work. Mm. It's based on the work of tomorrow. I know that you've spent a lot of your time working with alcoholics, other women really trying to help show them. And, and I think you're in many respects, kind of like a guru, very, very understanding of the illness at a deep level. And, and I've seen the results of the women that you've worked with. And of course, God works us through us all in these processes. I like to say the 12 steps can give me a lot, but the 12th step working with another gives me everything. What's your take on that viewpoint that I have? Very similar? I think that's that's how God makes me useful. Is that he or she or it or whatever, and I hate to give it a like gender pronoun, but it's just easy, has given me all of these experiences and all of this love and now the capacity to share the experiences and the love and through my higher power not to block it with me to give that to other women and whoever, you know, to other human beings. It's like the flow. The more I put of that out, the more of that love and understanding and capacity for compassion grows and, and it's, it circles. Uh, my journey sponsoring absolutely is the high point in my life. I wish there was a couple of hours extra in a day because I could talk to a few more people. So when we talk about self-reflection in this program, essentially that's what it is. It's becoming aware of what and who you really are in any given moment. The first process is your first four and five, where we start seeing, you know, maybe unwillingly sometimes, what and who we really are with a sincere attempt to become who we could be. And maybe some respects, maybe that's even skewed because at that point, I don't know if I really want to come become this saint like person is kind of where my ego takes it to but as i if i'm desperate enough i do this process but when you look at all the steps they're all self-reflective and it's like self-realization self-realization you start realizing things about self and over the years of self-realization realizing things about self you realize you're not that self you're something greater than that and through the one-on-one self-analysis you're looking at yourself, talking to yourself, listening to yourself. And this whole process holds you accountable to you and what you're doing and growing in the image and likeness of your own creator, trying to be the best version of you. But it also opens a portal of, of compassion for your other human being, understanding we're all very similar in that respect. And then you develop a large piece of compassion for yourself 
And then this genuine humility just manifests itself. And like you said, that circle, what you give out, you receive. For years, I gave out resentment, anger, and violence. That's what my life was because that's what I would always get. And like similarly to you, now I've had a lot of that change. And I like to say, you know, you work for a creator and the people and creator and the people work for you. And you're not out there forcing and grabbing anything. It's delivering itself to you, right? Yeah, it just shows up. And and you know what? It can't be self-directed because I do not have the capacity that the higher power that I work towards working for has. Like the the vision and the complexity and and what that's brought me to I could never have conceived that. Mm. Never. It's outside my conception. My conception is human. And so the best thing I can think of has nothing compared to what God has in store. Okay, so in closing, for any women or members out there struggling that are trying to do a program of recovery that maybe you're lost, do you have any closing words for for our listeners? Absolutely. You know, the biggest change for me that I truly wish everyone could hear and hear repeatedly is that this program and this power outside ourselves and bigger than us is available to all of us, regardless of whether you think you're worth it, regardless of whether you think you can do it. It is. It's it's one of the only things I know to be fact. It's available. And it's available through following some simple directions. And the directions are laid out. And there's people waiting to share it with you. But you gotta you gotta walk towards it, not away from it. That's amazing, Mel. So I really, really thank you for for your story and a lot of inspiration and value that our listeners and myself today can inhale so i really want to thank you for joining us here today and for your service to uh, try to help other people and it was really really a pleasure to have you here mel well thank you very much bill it was an absolute honor to be here and certainly appreciate you taking my poorly put together words and and bringing them together into a beautiful package because uh when you reflect back to me what I'm trying to say, it builds. Thank you for tuning in to the UDR cast. We hope you have enjoyed this episode. The viewpoints and the opinions expressed today were solely of the individual sharing them. If you resonated with this episode, please follow us and share this link with anyone that may benefit from it. Please visit us at billward.life to see everything that we have going on. We can recover. One person one family, one community at a time.